0: This is Conquering Columbus.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike here. And today on the show, I'm flying solo. talking with Mark Kellenhofer, founder and CEO of Return on Ingredients. I had a great time talking with Mark, learning a little more about his unique approach, something that I didn't even realize was really out there until I got the chance to talk with Mark. He takes a real cost-conscious approach to working with restaurants. And early on, we talked about how Mark took what he learned from manufacturing and brought it to the restaurant business.
0: Everything about manufacturing really is in the restaurant industry. So we wanted to be a lot more methodical about how we identify that cost. Mm -hmm. And then when we have a total cost, all of a sudden now, you can have some confidence with the pricing and the model on the menu that we're gonna drive profitability. So that's partially where all this started from. And over a five year period, I was able to reduce their cost line every year after when I treated them like manufacturers. So I knew at the time, there's something to this, right? Mm -hmm. There's something to the approach even though it managed our accounting, it's not a new approach, right. it's new to the industry.
1: Later, we talk about how this cost control strategy that market has developed and helped hundreds of restaurants implement can also be applied anywhere food is served or manufactured.
0: This concept applies anywhere where food's being manufactured. It could be a hotel, it could be a cruise ship, it could be a ballpark, it could be a school, mm-hmm. it could be a microbrewery, a distillery, it could be anything, right? As long as there's recipes, this concept of cost control works. So we started getting into microbreweries because micro breweries have brew masters that are no different than culinaries, right They got a lot of pride, a lot of emotion. But maybe they don't always have the numbers behind them.
1: We wrap up talking about some advice for anyone who's thinking about becoming or even is currently an entrepreneur. The good entrepreneurs
0: really know when to ask for help because you can't be good at everything. I know that when you start out a business, you want to do everything, your hands are on everything. But at some point, you're going to find out I'm not that good, you know, and maybe I need to find another company to help me really grow There is a point when you're running a business where you have to really make sure you understand
1: your pros, but just as much understand where you're not doing good. And maybe it means bringing in a third party. I had a great time talking with Mark. And as always, hope you enjoy listening to this interview as well. That's it for me. Let's get on with the show hey everybody welcome to another episode of the conquering columbus podcast this is your co-host mike here and today flying solo josh got stuck at home someone next door to him is actually uh, working on the house and they dug a six foot pit where his car needs to go through to get out. And they said it'd be done in time. It wasn't done in time. So you got me. Hope everybody's having a great week. It is uh, currently Thursday and really excited to be talking to a guest that wasn't even aware that his business was a thing. But as I got into reading about it, it seemed pretty interesting and I'm excited to learn a little more about it. So today on the show, we've got Mark Kellen Hoffer, he's the CEO of Return on Ingredients. And Mark is a CFBE, CTA, MBA, President and CEO. And Return on Ingredients has more than 20 years of experience in bottom line boosting accounting. He spent 20 plus years in managerial cost accounting, refining his methods, including seven years in restaurant cost management. And when these two areas of expertise are combined, his one-of-a-kind methodology was born. Mark holds a master's degree in business administration and a bachelor's in arts, majoring in accounting and business administration from Ohio Dominican University in Columbus, Ohio. He's also a certified food and beverage executive through the American Hotel and Lodging Educational Institute, as well as the certified tourism ambassador through the Tourism Ambassador Institute and a certified bourbon steward through the Thief Society. And he's currently as well a lecturer at the Ohio State University Hospitality Management Program, as well as an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University's Master's in Global Hospitality Leadership Program. And now that I've got that intro out of the way, it's Really excited to have you here on the show, Mark, and talk a little more about your business.
0: It's awesome to be here, and I appreciate the invite, and uh, I'm looking forward to the interview.
1: Yeah, and you know what I realized in that entire intro is I really didn't give a good definition for exactly what Return on Ingredients does. So maybe we can start there and just talk a little bit about Return on Ingredients and kind of what your day-to-day looks like right now.
0: Yeah, so maybe I should talk first about how it actually got started, because I
1: think Mm -hmm. that's... And and maybe even further back, you know, your story and kind of how you got to where you are right now. So,
0: you know, I got out of college and went into managerial cost accounting. So I actually went into industry and manufacturing for about a decade. And then I got into restaurants in 2002. I was hired by Bravo Brio Restaurant Group here in town. And one of the things I found out very quickly was that they did not have a clue what the cost of their product was. So, you know, back in the industry and the manufacturing component that I was with, my God, we were so analytical. We knew every single number. You know, when we talk about raw materials, labor, overhead, and we made sure, regardless, that we were going to make some money. Right. Mm -hmm. So now I'm at Bravo Brio in the early days where I found out quite quickly that they really didn't have a good grasp of what their cost identification was. And in fact, what I found out was that on the ingredient side, that's really our raw materials. They weren't really that great at identifying the cost at the ingredient level. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of processes that happen. There's losses, there's yields, there's densities. It's a science, right? Mm -hmm. But that was only one part of cost. And there's still labor and overhead to produce the product early days when they're putting pricing on the menu, it's still a guess because mm-hmm. they only have partially one piece of cost identified compared to industry where we know the total cost of every product. Right? Right. So I took that as a challenge and went ahead and treated them like manufacturers. Now, chefs don't like to think that they're manufacturers, mm-hmm. but really they are. They're modifying a raw ingredient, becomes something different. It takes labor and overhead to convert it. And eventually we have a finished good, which we call a menu item that we sell. Everything about manufacturing really is in the restaurant industry. So we wanted to be a lot more methodical about how we identify that cost. Mm -hmm. And then when we have a total cost, all of a sudden now, you can have some confidence with the pricing and the model on the menu that we're going to drive profitability. So that's partially where all this started from. And over a five-year period consecutive five years, I was able to reduce their cost line every year after when I treated them like manufacturers. So I knew at the time there's something to this, right? Mm -hmm. There's something to the approach even though a manager accounting it's not a new approach, right. it's new to the industry.
1: How big was Bravo Brio at the time? When I first got
0: that? there, they had 18 stores. So when I left, they were close to 90.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, what's unfortunate about the industry, a lot of people, when I talk about business failure rates with restaurants, a lot of people say, yeah, we know that we see restaurants fail all the time, right, mm-hmm. and one of the things that unfortunately happens, even if they go to a hospitality management program or a culinary arts program, they don't do a very good job at teaching cost control. Mm-hmm or teaching hospitality accounting, or even teaching entrepreneurship in some cases. You have, unfortunately, this disconnect. And when they leave those programs, and it doesn't matter where it's at, it can be overseas, it can be here, it can be anywhere, they're not really prepared for the difficult business they're about ready to get into. I used to say before COVID, it is one of the most difficult businesses to be in, mm-hmm. and one of the most challenging. After COVID, it's no doubt. Right. It's even more difficult today than ever compared to what 20 years ago when I first
1: got into it. Sure. I mean, I can't even imagine. I work in a software company. We don't have any ingredients, right? Our cost of goods sold is simply, you know, the development team and our customer success team. That's it. Mm. Right. It makes it really simple. The accounting's easy to follow. Uh, if you had the number of ingredients they possibly go into a menu item, and then take into account that, hey, maybe this chef uses a little more, this chef uses a little less, and suddenly you have no idea how much you're going to be using on a regular basis and how much actually went into food tonight.
0: Right. And there's portion controls you can use to get the consistency there. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually very big on using, you know, tablespoon, teaspoon, cups, spoodles, whatever they have, scoops to help with the portion control. But you also need to understand that everything that goes into those utensils is not a fluid measurement. So a cup is a fluid measurement, right? Mm -hmm. It's eight fluid ounces. But if you put a basil leaves in it, you don't have eight ounces of basil leaves, right? So there is a science to it and there's complexity to it as well because of that. And on top of that, a lot of things we process have losses. So when I go into a restaurant, a lot of times, what I'll find is there's a lot of processes that go undocumented the details aren't there. They're not accounting for losses and densities mm-hmm. properly. And in some cases, maybe they're guessing at the weights. But in the majority of the time, their costs that they develop for their product is just their attempt on ingredients only. And it's understated because they haven't accounted for everything. So if that piece is understated, what do you think the profit is?
1: Right. Uh, it's right? overstated. Yeah. Profit would be overstated. Well, right? yeah. what they
0: thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what happens? they end up getting a lower number. Right. right? Lower than expected. Yeah, exactly
1: right and cash suffers. Mm-hmm. And cash yeah, is king cash in Cash is king in his business. Especially production. in a restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that we've noticed talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and especially folks who get into businesses that involve keeping inventory and buying ingredients or selling a product, you know, where they're selling a product to a larger business entity who doesn't necessarily like to pay very quickly and they run into a cash flow issue. And that's a story that's pretty common against across a lot of entrepreneurs who are doing their first thing that involves a lot of inventory control or moving parts. So I'm not surprised that that could be an issue. So I'm curious, you get done working with Bravo, Brio Group, and do you immediately jump out and decide, you know what, I'm going to go make this my own thing? Or, you know, what did that look like?
0: Well, not totally immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I knew there was something to that approach, Mm -hmm. right? And so I went ahead and interviewed other restaurant operators in town here. And what I found out fairly quickly is that the need was great. Mm -hmm. Almost everywhere I went, I could tell that they had Greater need for greater controls, cost identification, the menu engineering process wasn't very formal at all. They weren't making money or maybe not enough money. So I knew that there was a huge need. And on top of that, if you actually did the research on restaurant failure rates, they're high. So I know part of this is I think that if we create this concept of where we're much more methodical, we can help turn that failure rate around. Mm -hmm. I actually created Return on Ingredients in 2009. So we've been doing it as a business since then. Now, if you were to ask me, if you were to ask me, is the
1: need still there? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So 2009, obviously, an uh, interesting time in the world, <laughs> you know, with the financial crash. You start a business. And is this kind of on the side of things where people are starting to come back and things are starting to come back? Or were you in the heart of like the recession? I was in the heart of it.
0: But think about this. It's the same thing with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. The one that we just got through. When restaurants go through a tough time and if they have enough cash to make it through the tough periods, all of a sudden they look and they say, you know what? We should be doing things better because we don't want to go through what we just went through. I mean, we did survive, Mm -hmm. right? And we didn't close the doors, but we don't want to go through that struggle again. right? You know, so even today, I would say that, you know, we're seeing our volumes go up only because people who survived COVID and didn't have the doors shut Mm -hmm. realize, hey, we got to have something better in place than how we've done it traditionally. I'm sure you've heard the phrase is that we've never done it that way. Mm -hmm. And my justification then would be, have you seen the industry failure rate? And maybe we should be doing it a different way. And, you know, so one of the things I do throughout all these years in order to promote the services that we have, I go out and I started speaking at trade shows. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the authority of cost management at trade shows. So the first year I did it, I maybe landed three speaking gigs. Mm-hmm. The year before COVID I was up to 35. So it is actually a great way to educate them about why they need to do this approach and going into complexity but the benefits of doing it. and I call it educational marketing. I do it all the time. It's very effective. So when I'm speaking in front of a crowd, I've had many either 100 people all the way up to a thousand know, at one time. If they're in front of me, I know they're a pre-qualified lead, right? They need some help. They would not be in front of me waiting for me to talk about what I do Mm -hmm. otherwise. So it's been a great way for lead generation, great way to create the relationships early. Getting them to commit sometimes takes some time. But once I've got their name, email, and all that, I am good at keeping that relationship going. And Mm -hmm. they may not become a client for... Years, mm-hmm. but then out of the blue, right? Yeah, they'll, they'll call and say we realize how difficult it is. You know,
1: so when you engage with the client and they come in and say, "Hey, look, I got no idea what this stuff is costing." How do you get down to that nitty-gritty? I mean, it's got to be a pretty in-depth process to kind of it really is. understand. There's a couple parts and pieces. The place I
0: always start. I even do this for my uh, students at Ohio State. The starting point is always the recipe documentation. Always. Right? Because ultimately, it's your product. It's what they're all about. This is what's going to be generating revenue and profitability, hopefully, for them. But I can tell you, I've been to places where the recipe documentation is atrocious. Mm-hmm. But in, in some cases, completely missing. I'll tell you this story. Back in 2009, I had my, one of my first clients, right? Mm-hmm. And they were losing money for months, Mm-hmm. I go, you know, that's not normal. We need to turn this around so that you're making some money, because if you're in the business just to have fun, you chose the wrong business. It's got to make some cash, got to be profitable. And so in the first place, I start the recipes. And the chef said, we don't have any recipes. Well, that already translates. I know already they don't know the cost, obviously, because they don't have anything documented. But think about training, consistency, quality. That recipe is tied to so much. I start there all the time. In many cases, we have to assist in the documentation to actually get it up to where we're accounting for all the processes. And that's where we always start before we even attach the first penny. Mm -hmm. It's all about making sure we understand what the product is, the process, portion control tools. And then we get into attaching numbers, which has its own set of difficulty. So the issue with food distribution is that when we buy product, it's not always consistently packed. So mm-hmm. you do have to know how to convert pack sizes all the way down to an ounce, fluid ounce, or each, or whatever it might be. And there are operators out there that have a fear for numbers, and they're not really good all the time with math. Mm-hmm. You know, So when we go in, a lot of times, we'll have to make sure that those conversions are done properly so we can develop a cost.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's also, I mean, if I think about it, right, there's probably a certain percentage of the ingredients that go bad in delivery, right? On average, you're going to have one or two boxes probably that if you get a uh, full pallet, right, you're going to get one or two boxes. That pallet might have, you know, some. Well, we hope that's not the
0: case. They should be checking the product in at the back door. That alone is a cost control, right?
1: Right. And then you've got, you know, some of the product that maybe goes bad in the freezer or doesn't get used if people do orders. And then how do you possibly, you know, assign that cost? Is it written off? Is, I mean, I took a couple of accounting classes in college. So here's and what we my head we,
0: <laughs> typically when we go into a restaurant that doesn't have cost controls in mm-hmm. place, it's not too unusual that I'll do the same thing that Gordon Ramsey will do, which means I'm going into that and freezer right after I look at the recipe documentation to see the levels of inventory mm-hmm. and the levels of prep. And I can tell pretty quickly when they don't have proper procedures, where they're overproducing product or overbuying product. That's in many cases where a lot of restaurants will have waste, Mm -hmm. uh, unintentional waste, Mm -hmm. right? If it's planned waste, it's waste we expect and we account for. So we want to reduce the inventory levels as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So in the recipe, if we're accounting for planned waste, that's the ideal circumstance, right? We mm-hmm. know that by processing a banana, we're pulling the peel off, we're discarding the peel, and automatically the cost for the peeled banana just went up, mm-hmm. right? Because you tossed out the peel and, and it was painful, labor. Right. right? But it also took somebody's hands yep. to process it, and there's overhead. We want to be as methodical as possible. We want to mitigate the waste The way we do that, which is part of our engineering process, is that we want to try to limit the number of menu items they have to produce. Mm -hmm. Which means, have you ever gone to a restaurant and looked at the menu and it was so large, you had no clue what to choose?
1: Yeah. Right. You know who someone who does this really, really well is Cameron Mitchell's restaurants. They almost never have too many items on them. When you go sit down at a Cameron Mitchell joint, you get a menu and it's probably got six or seven entrees, some sandwiches, and the menu's never complicated.
0: Right. And so what they did there is that they reduced the amount of purchased products for that menu. They also reduced the amount of prep they have to support that menu. So if you walked into their walk-in coolers and freezers, you wouldn't see a gross amount of inventory and Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be going to waste. They should be using it and rotating that product and Properly
1: making different menu items with the same ingredients also increases. Yeah, exactly. The cross, yeah. cross
0: utilization. Exactly. Okay. So one of the things I do, and I tell my students this all the time, when you look at a menu, I want you to look at it a little bit differently. I want you to count the number of items, you know, at the beginning of the cost control class I got at Ohio state, they might laugh at that initially and I go, well, no, let's take a look at it. You know, mm-hmm. so they'll bring in a menu. And there could be 80 items on a dinner menu. I'll say, let's think about this. You know, do you think that they're going to be able to execute those 80 items consistently with the same quality all the time? No. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of the things we do is we uh, call it menu rationalization. We'll reduce the size in the menu. Now, sometimes that's tough to do when you have a culinary component. So we do have... Two things we have to be aware of. It's not only about the numbers, but it's also about the quality, flavor, presentation. There's a lot of passion sometimes behind those dishes. Mm -hmm. We want to be smart, but we want to do it methodically where we take into account both. We never want to reduce quality, right? Right. But we do want to find ways where we can reduce costs, maybe buy an alternative ingredient, maybe it's finding out maybe you can get a better product made for us versus making it in house, things like that. But if we want to bring in a high quality ingredient, we have to charge properly for it. And so we have to identify that cost.
1: So we talked about one leaky bucket, which is the ingredients and how they pick and pack and how they prepare those ingredients. But what are some other typical leaky buckets you see in your experience?
0: Okay. So the two biggest overproduction, overordering product. I mean, when you have too much inventory, if you think about it in industry, we still calculate inventory turns, which I like to do. Mm-hmm. I want to know how well the ingredients are actually turning and working for us. I want the cash not to be tied up in the inventory, and even worse. I don't want the cash to be thrown out in the dumpster. When we limit the amount of ingredients, we have a much more better chance to actually use and generate sales on those ingredients. So not only do I count menu items, I count the number of purchased products it takes to support the menu, and I count the number of recipes.
1: Okay. And I'd imagine that you'd, in an ideal scenario, you'd be turning over the last bit of inventory just before it goes bad.
0: Yes. Yeah, so have you ever heard of just-in-time? Just-in-time. just in times, what restaurants should be using, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't, partially because maybe systems don't always give them a proper information to do that. But the right. other part is that if you're a chef, and this happens all the time, Chefs never want to say no, Mm -hmm. right? They don't want to say to a guest they're out of a product. And so one of the things that we did when I was Bravo is I said, that's great, but you know what? I want you to do better. I want you to make smaller batches so that we are only producing closely to what we need for the day, and that's it. I don't want you to produce for the next three days, Mm -hmm. because when you do that, the clock is ticking, right? Right. And we have that chance of wasting it over time. Mm -hmm. So I wanted them to be very disciplined and produce what we need for the day to create as close as possible a just-in-time environment. That's where a lot of issues happen. Volume of product, volume of recipes. So I'll give you another example. Let's say that we walked into a fine dining restaurant. You read the menu descriptions. Not not only did you count the number of menu items, but you read the descriptions. Mm -hmm. I bet you could even tell when a lot of those things are house-made, mm-hmm. right? When you see that, and when I see that, automatically my head's saying, we got a lot of prep recipes that we have to account for. And on top of that, the amount of labor they're spending to produce all those recipes is significant. And if they don't account for the labor, then they're missing a huge chunk, right? right? And if it's house-made,
1: should we expect higher
0: cost? Absolutely. But, you know, if you were to go out and talk to... Ten restaurants tonight, mm-hmm. and you interviewed them, not me. You, right. if you interviewed them, you asked them, "Do you account for labor on your recipe cost?" I would say probably all ten would say no. Mm. Okay, now I think those days are gone, right? Or at mm-hmm. least they should be. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the way we approach cost identification needs to shift, especially post-COVID, because what we have now is higher commodity cost, mm-hmm. higher labor cost higher overhead in terms of electricity and things like that, So yeah. and packaging. So we have a business now that's getting hit on all components of cost. And if they are not identifying all of them, it makes it tough to respond.
1: Frankly, if there's a restaurant out there that hasn't changed their menu prices with everything that's been going on, just looking at the cost of ingredients purely, right? Like ingredients have spiked incredibly with everything that's going on in Ukraine and this supply chain issues that we're seeing. So if you haven't, you're just probably eating a loss right now.
0: Yeah, potentially.
1: Um, you know, and I, I had a client recently
0: losing 20 grand a month. So we identify their costs. I can tell you the primary issue of losing that kind of money was because they weren't charging the right price.
1: So is this a solo Play for you? Or are you the only employee of Return on I, I have another one, but I also have
0: some other uh, consultants I bring in periodically. I kind of figured so that'd be an example. The yeah. It's not too often, happens every once in a while, but not too often will I have a need with a client where we need to have culinary consulting. But if it comes up, I got a team I can tap on, and they're ultimately contractors for us, but I'll bring them in only if we need them. Right. right. Okay.
1: And so you said you do have one person on your team. Have you ever thought about expanding it at all? Or is this Yeah, we're going to
0: need to here pretty soon because the volumes are just too much to where we got it. And actually the business model's changing a little bit. I shouldn't say a little bit. It's changed significantly. So I've been talking about restaurants this whole time, but the reality is that this concept applies anywhere where food's being manufactured. It could be a hotel, it could be a cruise ship, it could be a ballpark, it could be a school, mm-hmm. it could be a microbrewery, a distillery, it could be anything, right? As long as there's recipes, this concept of cost control works. So we started getting into microbreweries because microbreweries have brewmasters that are no different than culinarians, right? They got a lot of pride, a lot of emotion, but maybe they don't always have the numbers behind them. In their case, especially if they have a restaurant operation, they now have recipes to produce the beer, but they also have recipes to support the restaurant. And so it's even more complex in that case. We're starting to go into these different industries, finding out the need is there too. You know, as we bring on team members, there's definitely going to be a learning curve on everything that we do.
1: How are you thinking about doing that? You know, obviously you've been kind of doing this for a while, not quite a one man show, but it's been kind of you running things and really getting in there. How are you thinking about bringing people on and scaling? Are you going to hire three people and turn them into you? Or are you thinking about division of labor here and like having a salesperson, having a couple of people do this? Like, how are you thinking about that? that that's a good question. The
0: sales piece of it, you know, for me has been through the educational component. Mm-hmm. But we really need somebody hired to work the leads. Let's say I go to a trade show and I work the trade show and I got 80 people in front of me. I get 80 business cards, right? I can't follow up on 80 business cards, Mm -hmm. right? So I really need to have somebody in there to help with that sales process. Even though it takes a while to actually close an account, there's a lot of accounts there that we have potential to work with all over the nation. So when those circumstances happen, Mm -hmm. I'm choosy about who I'm taking on as a client. I typically work with emerging chains or larger chains. Doesn't mean I'm not going to do a mom and pop, but I like to get in there at an early stage where I can help them grow and expand and be profitable and successful. Doesn't mean that a one location can't. But if they already have three, it tells me, well, there's something here already. If they've opened up additional stores, I think we can help them grow faster. I think the sales side, we need somebody there. The other thing, believe it or not, that we got into doing is that we are, in some cases, handling the full menu changes for companies now. Hmm. So not only will we do the costing of menu items that they're getting ready to put on a menu, but making decisions on what comes off, which is just as important, but we're also getting into the actual menu layout. So we'll handle the whole thing from R&D, cost, price, menu layout. And desktop publishing is another area where we could easily bring somebody in and actually provide that as a service.
1: Okay. So you've got some ideas and some kind of vision for expansion. What do you see being kind of the biggest obstacles to that growth? I guess, what's your long-term goal? Well, I
0: I think the biggest obstacle is finding analytical people that understand manufacturing accounting, but also food, that that can be a challenge, but it also can be learned. You know, so if I can find somebody that's analytical, I think that's a great opportunity for me to groom them and grow that because I can't be doing all that all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I play an active role with the clients they got now. But if we want to really grow this thing, we're going to have to find other analytical people, Mm -hmm. which also means technology. So the technology side of it is very complex and it's very competitive. So if you ever look at potential tools that restaurants use, that whole arena is very competitive.
1: Right, I've heard of a couple like eRestaurant and a couple others that focus on cost of goods sold, but I'm not sure of the details. They all got it. their pros
0: and cons. Yep, and they all need to communicate to other pieces of software like accounting and point of sales systems and things like that. Mm-hmm. So when we go in, sometimes we'll recommend a system, but if they already have a system, we'll maintain their system for them on an ongoing basis. Which means that they have to be a quick learner on understanding all the guts of mm-hmm. the calculations and recipes and what's really all there.
1: So, Mark, outside of ROI, you've also got another company that you're working with that started as a publishing firm. Can you tell me a little more about kind of the Restaurant Institute and what all is going on there and maybe just the story of the background of it?
0: Right. So on Restaurant Institute, it, it's got a funny start to it. When I was speaking at all these trade shows, somebody mentioned that I should write a book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want the book to be branded Kelton and Publishing, and I wanted to have something behind it. So in 2012, I went out to GoDaddy, found out that restaurantinstitute.com was available. I went ahead and created the website, and I put the Restaurant Institute logo on the back of the book. So when I took this book to these trade shows, people that were in the crowd hearing Mm -hmm. me speak would then many cases by the book and they would look on the back of the book and see it was published by restaurant institute and they thought it was a national publisher Mm -hmm. which in reality it was just me Mm -hmm. so it started out as a book publishing company and i've done different editions of that book since Mm -hmm. but then restaurant institute actually created some other Publication. So we have now a quarterly publication called Food, Beverage, Labor, Cost Control Quarterly. And we've done that now for five years. So we have this periodical that's out there. And then in 2016, I started doing my own conference. So I thought, well, I'm traveling all over the nation here, and in some cases outside the nation. And I said, well, why don't I just have people come to me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start a conference in Columbus. And so that conference now is in its seventh year. But now that conference has grown. Mm-hmm. It's no longer just in Columbus. We have one in Columbus, one in Washington, D.C., one in Louisville, Kentucky. We're getting ready to add Charlotte, North Carolina. So Restaurant Institute is starting to create its own legs, its own business, right? Mm-hmm. And we are now getting into the training component. So we're looking at doing an external management and training program. We're also looking at other training videos that we're going to offer as programs and packages that restaurants and food service operators can subscribe to. So we're starting to grow that business as well to the point where it's got its own legs, even though technically it was started to promote everything I was doing with return on ingredients.
1: Yeah, sounds really interesting. You plan on continuing to teach? I like teaching. Yeah. I ended up getting
0: the job at Ohio State. It's a food and beverage labor cost control course, which I teach and live, right? Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting that because a professor at OSU invited me to speak to their hospitality management students. And I went there and I did an hour presentation or whatever. And maybe six months later, I call to them. them. So you never know when opportunities open doors. But, you know, I really l- love teaching. It's great. I love the topic. Mm-hmm. It's not work for me. It's a passion.
1: Makes a lot of sense, Mark. I think that's a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show. They're centered around, well, one of them centered around the theme of the show. But the first one is, would you have any advice for our listeners? And our listeners out there, just to give you an idea, are typically going to be Young professionals, entrepreneurs, folks in and around Columbus, and they're listening because they're trying to learn how people got where they
0: are. One of the things is that, in terms of entrepreneurship, you know, I really think, and even restaurants, you know, we think about restaurant entrepreneurial ventures, you got to be methodical. Mm-hmm. The last thing you want to do is just jump right in and not really have a good grasp of the niche you may have. Like, I, I really feel I have a good niche. I mean, how many other people do you know that do this? Mm-hmm. Not very many in the whole nation, right? Identifying a niche is really part of it. Methodical, thinking about everything methodically. But one of the things I tell when I go speak at trade shows, I say this all the time, you know, the good entrepreneurs really know when to ask for help. Because you can't be good at everything. I know that when you start out a business, you want to do everything, your hands are on everything, but at some point you're going to find out, I'm not that good, you know And maybe I need to find another company to help me really grow the company. Mm-hmm. There is a point when you're running a business where you have to really make sure you understand your pros, but just as much understand where you're not doing good. And maybe it means bringing in a third party.
1: Mark, our last question of the show here at Concord, Columbus, center of the theme on the show, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase for a show about entrepreneurs and leaders in and around Columbus, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career?
0: All right. Well, there's two things. As an entrepreneur, you're always always in circumstances where you're going to be uncomfortable. But I'll give you an example. You know, that bright idea I had about going out and speaking at these trade shows. Well, that was an uncomfortable position. It meant me being out in front of, in some cases, many, many, many people Mm -hmm. and speaking. Sometimes it's recorded, you know, and things like that. And I remember I had one speaking engagement down in Texas and we had a call before the engagement and the lady on the phone said, "Okay, when you're on stage, you're going to have two big screens on each side of you and then you'll have your primary mic and I said how many people are going to be in front of me she said oh, about five six hundred people <laughs> but over time I got really good at it mm-hmm. right but yeah, I can tell you those first few times I did it totally uncomfortable I may not have done the best presentation mm-hmm. but over time I really got it down pat yeah so you run into those circumstances and they're going to happen and every week you're an entrepreneur you're going to have good days you're going to have bad days it's part of the
1: challenge The important thing is just doing it. And I think that, I mean, I could tell you right now, if you went back and listened to some of our first podcast episodes, you're not going to hear the same quality that we've got today. So get out there, get it done. I like that advice. And Mark, it's been great talking to you. Really appreciate you coming in and sharing your story with us. Yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that interview with Mark, or if you're a restaurant and you want to learn more about Return on Ingredients, you should go to... ReturnOnIngredients.com ReturnOnIngredients.com and check that link out or uh, reach out to us. We can put you in touch with Mark. And thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to hear more interviews just like this one, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. We drop our episodes every Monday, so you'll never miss another one. Thanks so much for tuning in. Appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week.